0: Hi everyone and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Innes, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Mark Bonner, the author of Offene Weltstrukturen from 2023. The publisher is Büchner Verlag in Germany. Before we jump right in though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five stars review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your choice. You are more than welcome to leave feedback or questions on Spotify too. Also, please feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now back to the show. What role do algorithms play in the construction of images and the representation of the world and weather in computer games? How does the design of rooms, levels, and topographies influence the decisions and behavior of the players? Is brutalism the first genuine architectural style of computer games? How is nature represented in times of climate change? As you can clearly see, there are so many questions to be answered today. And I'm more than happy to have the right person on the other end of the line to help me out. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Rudolf, and thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Well, I um, studied information science, art history, and history of the modern age. And um, I did a dissertation on uh, Santiago Calatrava, which is a contemporary star architect. And in this dissertation, I started to to uh, look into methods of media studies in order to analyze um the uh, circulation of images from modern architecture into movies and into computer games especially science fiction movies um and strategy games or meantime strategy strategy games and therefore i had to look into um uh, film studies and uh, set design and production studies and things like this so There was my start into um, getting in between disciplinaries, between art history and media studies. And right after my dissertation, I got a job as lecturer at the University of Cologne at the department for um, media culture and theater, where I was lecturer mostly for media theory, media history, and uh, game studies up until 2017. And from 2017 to 2017. 22, I had a um, research project funded by the German research foundation
0: on open world games before, of course, sorry, of course, we have to check now for your Ludo street credibility. So if you don't mind, please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you are playing right now. Okay. So one,
1: one favorite game that's really impossible to say. So if I go for decades or for the number of play time, I could say a group of games, for example, SimCity 2000 was a game I really played, I don't know how many nights during the, how, when was it released? 1999, yeah. or 1989. Um, so SimCity 2000 was really, um. A game that had a high impact on me as well as the first Command & Conquer um, and other than that um, I was really into these first 3D games that really did three dimensional uh, space like Wake or the first Tomb Raider and things like this but if I had to pick a favorite game I think I had to say uh, one of the Assassin's Creed games because there, my, my, um, mind opened up to this whole idea of, uh, yeah, freedom in a specific way, um, currently I play, um, Everspace 2 from this little German, uh, developer in Hamburg, Rockfish Games, which is a looter shooter in space. Um, and I recently finished viewfinder, which is a spatial puzzle game, where you have to take pictures from your environment and you can, so to speak, release these pictures, these Polaroids into the environment and again to create new level structures in order to uh, solve uh, a puzzle or in order to build a new path to your goal, which in the level structure, which was really interesting. Um, Yeah, that's what I'm playing right now or played recently.
0: I've heard about view, viewfinder as well. Yeah, it's, it's real difficult to, to describe it, actually, when you don't have a picture, uh, a concrete picture yeah. right right in front of you. So, well, before we start our deep dive, please tell our listeners, how did you come to write Offene Weltstrukturen in the first place? <laughs> well, as I said, I um, was
1: interested into architectural um, things concerning computer games or game spaces on from early on. So um, not only with my dissertation, but prior to that, when being a little boy and sitting in front of my Commodore sixty-four or an NES or what you had in back in the days, a Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And um I was also really interested in Lego um and in architectural documentaries. So this was my initial starting point. And from my dissertation on I um built upon researching Um, the depiction of architectural styles or of spatial configurations within computer games and how they may correlate to architectural history or theory. Um, And from this on, I went um, further and further up until the point where I realized that it's not only about the idea of uh, depicting the depiction of architectural styles, but it's more um, the question after building a believable world so um and this is the point where i found games like assassin's creed for example very uh, inspiring because it was all about these um open structured topographies within these game worlds and um from there on i looked uh, specifically into open world games um which was during my time at as lecturer cologne and then i uh, did apply to the German Research Foundation with a project called um Open World Structures, Architecture, a City and Landscapes in Computer Games. And they um greenlighted it, which made me very happy. And yeah, that's where I am right now. Um five years after researching this thing and writing eight hundred pages about it.
0: <laughs> so incredible. I have to have to tap Honestly, this book is right in front of me right now, and it's really—you could, of course, you could smash smash the skull of a burglar right now with it. It's really a fantastic book. You get actually, you get more than just your mental work. You get some actual value because you can use it for so many other things as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in your household. So, can you uh, can you elaborate on the concept of open world structures? And how it applies to the study of video games as interactive narratives.
1: Well, so for me, as I define them in my book, um, Mm -hmm. I see open world structure, um, as a term for, for, um, yeah, the structural layout of the game, the architectonics of the open world games. And for me, open world games are not a genre, but a mode of um staging a game world so because within an open world game you can have different genres right you can have a racing gaming combined with a shooter game you can have an rpg game combined with um metal royale and I don't know what else and all these uh accumulation of genres can be um prioritized in different ways and then additionally to that you have this so-called genre setting, so that it is set in space like um, the recently published Starfield or that you have a fantasy setting like in Witcher 3 or Zelda and things like this. So the idea of open world structure or open world game for me is just about a way to stage these worlds as a non-linear landscape where you can um, not only ful- fulfill missions and quests and uh, check your to check all your lists of uh, um mm-hmm. quests you have to solve but also about the idea that you can have your own um events your own um experiences within these games and mm-hmm. this specifically for me makes this idea of a of a mode to stage game world because it's to a certain degree um, free to explore and to a certain degree you are your own director in experiencing these game worlds
0: yeah well i wonder could you could you please share some insights then into the role of player agency within these open world games and how it affects the narrative experience yeah well of course open world games are not really that open so
1: they really all have uh, borders or boundaries and may they be topographical like there's an ocean as a border of uh um, a peninsula or there are high steep mountains uh, within open worlds that have uh, mountain valleys as a as a topography but you also have simply put screens that say you can go no further and then um the game would load an earlier save game or would um turn your avatar 180 degrees around so there I started to look into what kinds of borders and what kinds of boundaries do they have, these open world games. And you mostly have um, three types. You have these types with the invisible wall. You have these types with high or steep mountain And you have these types with the open ocean. Um, especially for these rural, uh, rural open world games. And then you have the urban open world games. Where you have a different type of boundary within it. Um, mm. So the player agency, of course, ends at these points where the landscape comes to an end. But you have these skyboxes around these level structures, which I define as active level structures where you can navigate and uh, operate in. And these um, skyboxes, of course, um, refer to a wide uh, and bigger world. Um, And there I use the term worldness or worldliness um, decoupled from the religious meaning of worldness or worldliness. Um, And then you have, of course, other boundaries, like you have level gating and story gating, so that there are areas within the open world you only can enter when you have uh, fulfilled a certain quest. So you could uh, proceed to these areas, like in Far Cry 3 and 4, for example, or well, that you have a level gating, so that areas have um, really high-level enemies, so that you can cannot stroll through these areas um, um, because the first enemy contact would uh, kill you with one hit or something like this. And um, besides these things, besides these borders, and besides these level gating or story gating strategies from the designers, you have the idea of Um, yeah, if I don't want to do a quest, if I don't want to solve a mission, I can let it be where it is and I can just climb up a mountain and watch the sunset or the sunrise. Um, and just admire, um, the volumetric cloud generation or grazing a deer down in the valley and things like this. So you really can have this idea of, um yeah, just strolling around, just wandering around without having a ludic a ludic goal, um, before you, so to speak. And that is a thing that, that is really, um, intrinsic to the idea of, of player agency in open world games, that you have this, this freedom to choose. Um, and um, will I follow now all these quest lines and t- this hierarchy of quests, and um, which is mostly depicted by icons or pictograms on the world map and which are really, um, yeah, stuffed with these, um, with these pictograms. For example, in the later or the newer Assassin's Creed games, you had, you had, uh, 150 quests to solve. And these are only the, the main and side quests without all these tertiary and optional quests, uh, besides them, So, um, if you look at the world map from the Ubisoft open world game, it is really stuffed with all these pictograms and items, and especially One um, thing that is really, um, was really um, um, looked at critically was the the, um, idea of the question mark pictogram or icon because this question mark pictogram would say to the player, here is a point of interest, go there and you may find something interesting, maybe an item or you would have to solve a puzzle or you would have to have a specific fight with, um, with an NPC and with this idea of, of putting these question marks into the landscape, um, the game designers would, would take the freedom of the player, um, to, to, um, to, um, how is it called? To experience the landscape by themselves, you know, to, to, to see the wonders of the landscape, to, to find things that were not known prior. To, uh, to the players and all these question marks um, say, so yeah, you can go there and you can see or experience something there. Um, so the idea of serendipity, um, is taken from the players that you're, uh, just by, by chance or by accident, uh, would experience something
0: interesting. Mm. Yeah, and this, this, basically this leads to my next question because I think you also mentioned the player's role as a narrative agent in open world games, maybe you could elaborate on this concept and how it relates to the broader discourse of narrative agency and in interactive media.
1: Mm,
0: well, so
1: especially with, with the recent years um, where also um, the players um, got to realize that we are in a time of uh, climate change and you have this idea of um, playing against the system. For example, there are um, players and also academic papers about this um, practice um, that play hunting simulations without killing the animals, just um, hiding them um, through their binoculars and following them and looking at them and admiring them for what they are, so to speak. And this idea of um, trying to to connect with nature is a thing that you can have in these rural open world games, um, and there are a lot of concepts you can bring in there, like ecological thinking or like solastalgia and things like this, all these cultural studies concepts that you, um, that originated in, in social studies or literature studies and things like this. So the idea of, of a narrative agent in open world games is completely, um, anchored to the specific likings of of a player um, so to speak so for example a player who doesn't want to hunt the game just looks at that. or a player that um, a player that um, doesn't like to do quests anymore is just wandering around the game world so for example um, um, there are players that just um, want to to uh, clear the fork of war of the world map so to speak so that they go in every corner of the world map that they climb at every mountain or every high building if possible with the agency of the avatar and just want to see everything and experience everything and take in every um yeah scenery every atmosphere that was built within this game world without um having to solve these quest locks and without following um there ever redundant uh, quest types that are put in there by the designers because most of the quests are check quests or um fighting quests so they are really redundant and monotonous and um they can feel like work as i said they, uh, there are open world games where you have to 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 do more than 100 missions and this could take you almost 50 to 100 or even more hours uh, to, to play through this, um, whole thing. And the narrative agent here is, um, starting at a point where you just leave this grid, just leave this, this hierarchy of quests you have to solve and step outside of this grid. Um, mm-hmm. and here at this point, I, I connected to um, Deleuze and Guattari's model of striated space, um. I'm sorry, of striated space and smooth space, so that you then are in a smooth space without following the infrastructure of the game world, but only um yeah, let you come coming in, in in a flow so to speak, and let you guide by the topography, by the animals, by the flora and fauna that's that is designed there, or by some things you find interesting within the lands uh, within the landscape, within the lines of the horizons and things like this. so narrative agent for menian open world games would start um his freedom at this point where he can step out into the smooth space and um with this connecting to to the theory of the Gatari, i also favored um one concept of my open world characteristics uh, which i coined the triated wilderness so that all these rural open world games Try to stage a pristine wilderness, um, which of course, isn't a pristine wilderness, if you look at them. And, um, so I defined them as a striated wilderness so that they are, um, infrastructure, uh, that they have a infrastructure, mostly like a city, because of course they are built, they are built landscape as a national park, as a zoo, as an English landscape,
0: uh, landscape garden and things like this. Towards the end of your book, you talk about the open world ideology and the player of open world games as nomad. Could you elaborate on that a little bit further?
1: Yeah. So the, the idea of, of the nomad is also deriving from Deleuze and Guattari. And it's a really, um, it's a really, um, yeah, how to say it, the, the term Deleuze and Guattari used or the idea of a nomad, they used in their book, Thousand Plateaus was uh, criticized throughout um, indigenous studies, uh, cultural studies, post-colonial studies, and so on, because they really worked with stereotypical ideas of the nomad. Um, and when you look into current current um, disciplines or current discourses uh, using the word, the the term, or the concept of nomad, there are actually um, mm-hmm. like um, feminist studies or gender studies and also um, post-colonial studies that now start again to use this uh, idea of nomad as a, um, a liminal as a liminal um, um, figure, you know, as a liminal, liminal entity in order to describe uh, political or ideological um, complexities. And I use the nomad, which is also a a point between the smooth and uh, the striated space by the discatari, in order to describe these these, um, two forms of the player so that he is always oscillating between solving quests, between following quest hierarchies, between gaining points, between upgrading uh, weapons and armor and um, level up and things like this. And the other point of um, leaving this all by the side and just admire the open world as it is without all these ludic elements. And this open world ideology then goes even further. It's not uh, just about this, um, dichotomy between the players and the designers or developers, but it's also uh, a third degree up to the, um, to the complete, um, um, how's it called, on um, publishers so that the developers also are in, in, a, in a specific, um, force relation to the developers and to the stakeholder companies that, um, all, um, finance these games, because most of these open world games, they are blockbuster games. And some of them cost up to $300 million and there are up to 1000 people working, um, on them for several years. So everything has to have a certain a point of effectiveness and of quality and so on. And this is what I call the the open world ideology. Of course, it's much more complexer, um, but if
0: you want to read it, you can read it in the book. Yes. And dear listeners, you should definitely read it in the book. Go, go out there, get your copy right now because it's worth every damn penny. So how does the concept of emergent storytelling fit into your exploration of open world structures and what examples illustrate this phenomenon effectively well yeah that's that's a big
1: question um so the idea of emergent storytelling um we can look at it from two perspectives or uh, f- uh, reference frames so the one point would be the point from the player when he um steps outside of this striated space of the grid and um, starts to generate his own narrative, his own experiences by wandering around, by um, maybe also um, um, disabling a minimap or something like this, if it is possible within the um, interface. And the other idea of emergent storytelling could maybe lie in something like um, procedural generated storytelling or um, like um, in these little... Yeah, optional side quests that may pop up in the near um, in the near environment of the avatar. Like uh, one one um, prominent example is uh, with Red Dead Redemption Two, where you um, just ride on your horse through through the Wild West, and then suddenly you hear something crying from from the woods near you and uh, crying for help. So you can follow this or you can ignore this and if you follow this uh, try for help it can play out in different ways so maybe it's really someone who was uh, trapped maybe uh, in a bear trap for example or was bitten by a snake so you have to um, help this um, NPC but it can also be um, gangsters who uh, want to rob you then. So this idea of, uh, maybe this is also an idea of emergent storytelling within these open-world games, and they are really criti- critical to open-world games in order to um, to let them be more organical or more vibrant um, so that they feel more alive to the player, you know, instead of just having there an outpost and there an outpost and everything like this. Um, yeah, and I don't know. If I can answer the second part of the question, how it would go to this cause of the broader, the broader discourse of the narrative agency in
0: interactive media. Um, no, sorry. No, it's yeah. a problem because maybe we can, we go, uh, come up with, uh, with something along the way, because the next question really plays into that idea. I, uh, somehow I've got the feeling at least. Because uh, your book discusses the potential for open world games to offer meaningful player choices, right? Uh, and what would you say are the are some fresh approaches to choice-driven narratives that you have encountered in, in your research or in your, in your play sessions? Mm-hmm. Well, so these um,
1: meaningful player choices would be these player choices of um, letting go of all these quest hierarchies and just do your own thing. And with that, maybe trigger some um, critical thinking about work, about the world itself, because all these open world games are um, depictions of our real world, um, and it doesn't matter if they are science fiction worlds or fantasy worlds, or I don't know what, um, I mean, Most, even most of these uh, open world games, especially the rural open world games, uh, depict US National Park um, topographies, especially the ones with Utah and Colorado and California and things like this, Yosemite Valley and Yellowstone um, and the Arches um, National Park and things like this. So um, you have a really specific idea of depiction of a free um, landscape or an open landscape at that lays at your foot, at your um, um, yeah. So you can do what you want in there. And this is also an open world ideology on an, on a novel level, which I also talk about in my book, because all these landscapes, all these um, parts that were taken from U.S. national parks, um, are already highly ideologized by the by the idea of the of uh, of the United States as a nation, you know, and becoming a nation. So you have a highly political. Um, idea of, 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 of freedom and world already put into these games, even if they are like a horizon forbidden West or horizon zero dawn, post apocalyptic, you know, um, and with this, it's really interesting that you have, um, that you have a, a game like Death Training where the U S is depicted like, uh, Iceland or Greenland. So you, you, you can have a, how to say it, you can, um, go back to zero and you can reflect on this landscape or on this society and this topography, uh, completely anew, new, so to speak. Um, but I have to admit the, the really interesting, um, approaches to choice driven narratives are mostly into, uh, immersive sim games. So, um, like the Dishonored games, for example, um, um, and, um, also like maybe the newer Hitman games, where you also have, so to speak, a semi open world, but you can have a lot of, uh, choices that really make a, a difference in the end. But again, with open world games, there are not that much, um, really interesting choice driven narratives, especially not on the side or mostly not on the side of, uh, of quest design and narrative design by the developers, because the bigger they are, they um, they have to to be sure that everyone uh, is hooked by the narrative and is hooked by the gameplay. So everything is streamlined, so t- so to speak. And this you can also see with the immersive sim games, um, where um, the these are games that had a really high impact on all the other games, but. The games themselves didn't sell that good as other games that were inspired by them. For example, um, Deus Ex and, uh, as I said before, Dishonored and things like this. And this is a really interesting thing. Um, and maybe on a side note, um, I just uh, published a special issue with two colleagues of mine, with Harjo Bakke and Felix Zimmermann, with the German um, journal Paidia about immersive sim games. but. Um, The special issue is mostly in English. So if you want to look it up, go to paidia.de and you can read about immersive sim games and the idea of choice-driven narratives and meaningful choices.
0: Again, again, a beautiful tip. Go ahead right after this podcast, check it out. It's a worthwhile magazine. I can only recommend it. So, um. Book also explores the convergence of narrative and ludic elements in open world games. How do um, game develop- developers and um, and game designers strike a balance here between these two aspects to create a cohesive player experience, especially uh, within the co- or within open world games?
1: Yeah, that's that's a problem with open world games, really. Because, um, for example, if you just look at Starfield right now, there are a lot of players criticizing um, that most of the planets are empty and you can't do anything on them. And the developers of Starfield, of course, just say, yeah, the astronauts on, um, during their new also didn't have to do much there except for getting some uh, probes and uh, maybe jumping a bit higher than on Earth. So um, that was the fun they had, right? And that's also about a game like Starfield or also a game like No Man's Sky. If you if you want to take this also in in the context, because um, the the players um, always look for affordances, always look for what can I use to 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 tinker my avatar, what can I use for for getting better uh, weapons or better items, what can I use to level up and to upgrade my 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 ship or everything I have on my avatar, and there is there is a certain um, there there's there's a re- really fine line. of of having this this idea of staging a believable world and giving the players enough to do for playing such a game for 50 or 100 or 200 hours. Um, And especially with these ideas of narrative and ludic elements, um, there were not that much good examples in the past. If you look, for example, Red Dead Redemption 2, which is a beautiful game and it has a highly complex uh, staging of of wild animals and how they hunt each other and how their hierarchy between them is. And they also have a highly detailed weather simulation um, going on there. And um, if you look at the quests, at the quest design, for example, it's really dull because it's mostly like, um, I don't know if the English uh, speaking audience knows this game, which was a little German browser game. Um, back in the days, and it was really popular, where you just uh, shoot these stand-ups that pop up in a in a setting in a scenery, and most of the of the missions in in Rated Redemption are like this, just shooting a bunch um, of of people and fetching something to bring it somewhere else. Um, on the narrative side, of course, it had some interesting t- t- tricks like um, getting the the avatar sick in this in the in the um, in the last part, in the last third of the game so um, that you can could see how the decline of the avatar would go further and further and further up until the end of the game. There's also this interesting thing of uh, areas that are called event areas by the designers where you can um, look into um, the exploitation of man over nature, um, over complete, over your complete playtime of the open world game. For example, there's a timber company. Um, that starts the work at the little wood, and um, over your playtime you can see how the wood is declining, further and further, up until the point where no tree stands there anymore, and there is just barren land, and um, dust particles would um, come up from the winds, so that you see that this everything uh, that everything is deserted. So this this idea of a progression within the game world um, is a thing that Red right at Redemption Two. Uh, is doing really, really great. And I hope that the next Grand Theft Auto will also have something like this, some some places that are dynamic and that have a progression. And I mean, these event areas in Red Dead Redemption 2 are really special because it's about the exploitation of nature, you know? So it's a really um, um, interesting, po- interesting point that is made there by the designers looking onto how everything came to be, um, with, with colonizing the West, you know, and starting to exploit all the, um, the wilderness. Yeah. Um, and then of course you have games like, um, the newer, the both new uh, Zelda games and a game like Elden Ring, where you have a really different take on narrative because here you also have this player agency, um, yeah, taking up the narrative part, you know, you don't have tons of dialogues or cutscenes or I don't know what, and everything is up to the player. So the designers really um, trust the players and put everything um, concerning world experience and seeing the interesting things or the important things in the world, um, putting all these things on the side of the player. And this is a trust most of the, um, Western open world developers, um, don't dare to do up to, up until today. Um, because they fear these players would, um, get lost or would miss out on things and then they would, uh, there would be a shit storm and the critique would come and Metacritic would rate their game down and things like this. So if you look at interesting points for for narrative and ludic elements in open world games, you have to look at something like Ring and the um, two recent Zelda games, because this, um, yes, it's not really a balance between these two aspects because everything, or not everything, but most is up to the player. And there are really not much open world games, I'd say, where you have a balance between the narrative and the ludic elements. Um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe Dead Redemption 2 is in there, also Witcher 3, because it has really good quest design, it has a really great world building, and it is, it has also great characters and, um, dialogues written in it. So maybe the Witcher 3 would be one of these games that strikes this balance. But again, um, most of these games don't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where, where my, my, um, concept of the player as a nomad come into play, you know, because of this fighting, um, somehow against all these quests and having some fun time by yourself and exploring things by yourself and things like this. Mm.
0: So I was li- I'd like to, to get a little bit meta for a minute and zoom out a bit. How do you see the current state of digital game studies in Germany? What are the topics that perhaps the next generation of, of younger researchers can or even should focus on? Mm.
1: Yeah, um, the current state of the digital game studies in Germany. That's, that's a really good point to talk about. I could talk about it the whole day. Um, so it's not a good status. It's, it's uh, it was a time where all was blue sky and everyone, um, would assume that there would be an institu- institutionalization of the game studies in Germany. But that never really happened. And um, if you look at other countries, especially like uh, in Scandinavia and the Netherlands and uh, uh, Great Britain, um, you can see how it might have played out for the game studies in Germany, but sadly it didn't. And so um, there's a lot we currently miss out on, especially in in the international discourse and especially on um, developing um, yeah, research foundation and in, in in Germany for for digital games. Um, I think what what most um, most important right now are things like like um, the ecological media studies, and there you have also this this hype um, about the green game studies that is um, on for three four years now, um, which has a really good potential and high potential. Um, and this is a topic that will also be more and more important, not only in game studies or media studies, but with every, um, with every research field, as well as, um, yeah, AI studies. Um, which is also interesting because if you look at at computer games, I mean, they are one of the first media formats that really had this idea of AI coming to a mass, uh, to mass media and coming to a bigger, broader audience. So. It would be really interesting to have some more research on the history of AI within computer games, for example. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I think it's more interesting to look into AI where it is right now, especially with something like chat GPT and things like this, or these, um, um, know, uh, visual generation softwares, um, like midway and things like this. So um, there will be a lot uh, to do in these fields and coming around back to another discipline like design or media design and and, computer design, game design, there will be also a lot of research about how this affects design as a discipline and the the job of the designer. For example, in my book, I have also a a chapter on procedural generation within world building of open world games. And of course, at this point, there was not this hype about chat GPT or mid-journey and things like this. So um, I couldn't um, um, contextualize to these things, but um, it was really really interesting to look into production studies and to look into design studies and how they use procedural generation or automated um, AI networks to create uh, landscapes or topographies within game worlds so this would also be an interesting thing um, ai and procedural generation um generative um ai where one will have to look into i think that's that's the most interesting and maybe also on a broader scale most important uh um These are the most important topics for for our future um, society and for future generations.
0: Speaking of future, we've taken up a lot of your time, but of course, I have to ask, what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next? That's the important question. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I'm currently
1: working on, um, uh, on two things. So I'm currently working on more of this eco-critical game studies stuff, especially with open world games. So I sure all the findings I had within this one chapter in my book. Then I also look, um, more into my old research field of architectural, um, practice and urbanism concerning, uh, eco-critical, uh, design, uh, there. And I also look into production studies more. So this is also a, the the correlation of eco um, ecological production studies um, in between architectural practice and game design. That is the thing I'm looking into more right now. And actually, there's a lot of uh, of books and um, papers written about it. So I'm really interested in. And really looking forward to read new books, finally, <laughs> and uh, what I will play. So I'm really looking forward to to October when um, when Spider-Man 2 and the new Assassin's Creed Mirage will come out so that my open world heart is filled again. And I also look forward into um, two indie games. Uh, the one is Ju-Sund or ju Song, where you have to climb a mega structure um, and in a really complex way. So it's not just like an Assassin's Creed or games like this, where you just put one button down and uh, the avatar can climb complex uh, surfaces, but you have to to balance out your avatar, mostly like in Death training, but just um, with a vertical, vertical level structure. So you really have to climb and climb and climb. And the other game is The Invincible, which is uh, also an indie game and a adaptation of the, um, book by Stanislaw Lem with the same, uh, title. And, uh, it's also designed like, uh, it would have been designed in the days of Stanislaw Neh-Lim. so it looks, it looks really like sixties, uh, fifties and sixties,
0: uh, science fiction. And I'm really looking forward to this one too. Well, that definitely sounds like a great project. So I want to thank you for being on the show today, Mark, and I really enjoyed it. So. Take care and goodbye.
1: Yeah. Again, thanks for having me and goodbye. Have a great time.
0: So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Inderst almost everywhere. And again, please share this episode where you see fit. See you in a bit.